Amen. Well, I hope you have your Bibles with you. Uh, we're going to look at several scriptures. I'm going to talk to you tonight about five things God is not. Five things God is not. And we're going to take this opportunity to look at a few passages of scripture. It'll give us an understanding of who God is and uh, how God operates from these five different passages of scripture that describe to us what God is not. And uh, thank you for standing and worshiping and praying. A good group here tonight. You can be seated. And I'll take you to the first slide and we're going to jump in. I'm not going to be long. I'm going to be short on a few of these points. When you hear the number five, I know that that scares you a little bit. Um, but some of these I'll move past quickly, and then I'll linger on a few of them. Number one, God is not a man that he should lie. God is not a man that he should lie. Numbers 23 and 19, God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not Make it good. Brother Collins was right in the Holy Ghost when he started practically quoting this scripture just a few minutes ago. Because God is incapable of lying. God is holy. And God has limited himself by his holiness that he is not able to speak an untruth. And that is both tremendously encouraging and it's also very sobering at the same time. It's sobering because if God says that there is going to be a judgment, that means there's going to be a judgment. If God says that you better repent or judgment is coming, you better listen because God is not a man that he should lie. Pastor preached about Jonah the other day, and, and uh, if God says that you need to go to Nineveh, you better go to Nineveh because God is going to keep his word, and he's going to make sure that his will is accomplished. And so if you are not in the will of God, it can be very discouraging when you realize that God is not going to change his mind. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. If God said homosexuality is a sin 3,000 years ago, he, it's still a sin today. And in spite of what popular culture says, if God says divorce is wrong yesterday, he still believes it's wrong today. Oh, it's going to get tight now, but we can just go ahead and say amen anyway. God is not a man that he should lie. His opinion doesn't change. His morality doesn't change. His character doesn't change. He's the same. And yet on the flip side, if you are a child of God and you're serving the Lord, you can take, you can take courage and know that if God said he'll bless you, he's going to bless you. If God said give and it shall be given unto you, you can take that to the bank. God is going to touch you. If God said he'll heal your body, you can know that he's not a liar. He's going to heal your body. If he said lay hands on the sick and they shall recover, you can lay hands on the sick with confidence, believing that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If God said that he is preparing a place for us in heaven, and it's going to be something that eye has not seen and mind has not comprehended. You can trust that God is preparing something for us that is beyond our ability to comprehend because God is not a man that he should lie. Somebody ought to say, thank you, Jesus. 
Now, I think the wording here is interesting because he uh, focuses here, Moses does, on the idea that uh, God is not a man. And we understand that men do lie, don't they? And ladies, you do too. Yes, people, human beings, lie. Yes, they do. They're not supposed to. It's a sin. It's wrong. In fact, the Bible has very strong, harsh words about liars and where their place will be. And sometimes I think in Christianity, uh, we lose sight of the importance of honesty and integrity. I see many Christians who are comfortable with what they think of as little lies. Anybody know what I mean when I say little white lies? Oh, wow. It just got really quiet, but that's, that's okay. If I didn't know better, I'd think there was some conviction happening right now, but I'm just going to assume it's Wednesday and you're tired. I talked to my kids about white lies, you know, because you don't have to teach a kid to lie. Do you know that? Nobody has to, you don't have to go to school and take a class on how to be a good liar. Kids just, they're human beings and they, they pick up lying instinctively because we have a sin nature. If you're wondering if we really have a sin nature, all you have to do is just realize how easy it is to lie. For some people, lying is just like taking a breath. They can do it without even thinking about it. It's just part of who they are. And, but God is not like that. God is not a man. The scripture is juxtaposing the attributes of God with the attributes of men. And we need to be careful that we realize that just because men have hurt us, that we can't put that pain on God. God is not a man. God is the sovereign Lord of lords, the King of kings. He's the great God of glory. He's a holy and righteous God. And he is not a liar. And so in our godliness, in our in our striving to be godly how many want to be godly in our striving to be godly we have to number one be honest with ourselves anybody ever known anyone who lied to themselves a lot uh, it's easy to lie to ourselves we have to be honest with ourselves about ourselves about who we are and we have to be honest with others and if we practice deceit, if we're a liar, if we're deceptive, the Bible teaches us, number one, that we are none of his, and number two, that we destroy our witness. Uh, we destroy our ability to be trusted by unbelievers. And we read in Proverbs that providing for honest things, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. And in this way, we earn high esteem in the eyes of God and in the eyes of men. One of your greatest testimonies as a true Christian, it's not just going to be you getting your Bible out and teaching someone a Bible study, and I believe that you should do that. But long before you ever do that, your witness is going to be your honesty and your integrity. You know, you don't have to do a lot. I talk to people a lot uh, about job situations, and uh, it's been a lot of years since I had a secular job. But I remember in the many years that I did, uh, it wasn't difficult for me to, to grow in the company. And it wasn't because I was just tremendously smart or even a, just a great worker necessarily, even though I tried my best. But uh, a lot of the growth that I had was simply because I was just about the only honest person there. Did you know you can rise above a lot of people just by being honest? 
people will start noticing that you're honest and that you have integrity. And when they notice that, even if they're not, they will trust you. You can have a boss who's a liar, but when he realizes he can trust you, he's going to want to put you in his circle. I think about Daniel all the time. Here he was a, uh, he was a captive basically in Babylon, and King Nebuchadnezzar put him in his inner circle. Why? Not because Nebuchadnezzar was an honest guy. He wasn't. It was because he wanted someone like that close to him because he could trust him. You can rise above a lot of things in this world if you just have an honest heart and you have integrity. And not only will you please God, but it will bless you in this world as well. How many still believe in old-fashioned honesty? We need a revival of old-fashioned honesty. Okay, I'm going to take you to the next slide. God is not a man that he should lie. Number two, God is not the God of the dead. Can you say that with me? God is not the God of the dead. Mark 12, 26, and as touching the dead that they rise. Everyone said the resurrection. Have you not read in the book of Moses how in the bush God spake unto him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Everyone said the living. Ye therefore do greatly err. Now, this was a situation where the Sadducees, you've read about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Uh, we kind of, if you don't study them, we kind of lump the Pharisees and the Sadducees together, but they were very different. Uh, they were uh, basically two different Jewish denominations if you will, and they had both perverted the scripture in their own ways. Um, but the Sadducees were uh, a religious sect of influential men who only believed in Genesis through Deuteronomy, and they did not believe in life after death. They did not believe in a resurrection. They did not believe in a soul, and they did not believe in angelic beings. Uh, they were naturalists. We might would think of them as naturalists nowadays. And so they approached Jesus as the Sadducees and Pharisees often did, and they would try to trap him with a question. Uh, you better be careful when you start trying to trap God with questions. And they thought, well, we'll get him in a corner because they knew that Jesus had a high view of Scripture. Jesus did not come to destroy the Old Testament. No, he did not. He came to fulfill the Old Testament. And he quoted the Old Testament all of the time. I, I sometimes uh, get a little frustrated with people, modern preachers, who don't think we can ever preach from the Old Testament. And, and I say, well, you would have had a real problem with Jesus because he did a lot of preaching from the Old Testament. You'd have a real hard time sitting through one of Jesus' sermons because he was, he was really into the Old Testament. And, and so they thought they'd trap him with a... a, a Levitical question, a question of law regarding uh, the law that if a man's brother died and his, uh, his wife was widowed, that he would take her to be his wife and he would take care of her. And they went through this uh, impossible scenario that would never happen. Have you noticed that's how people do things when, uh, when they're trying to wiggle out of something or when they're trying to do something strange? They'll, they'll present the one scenario that might could happen once in a million years, possibly. Are all the kids out of here? I'm going to just go ahead and we're adults here, so I'm going to get a little heavy. This is what people do with abortion, by the way. 
Well, uh, you're against abortion. Well, what if she was raped? All the kids are out. I'll wake you up. What if she was raped? And what if she absolutely knew that the baby was going to have Down syndrome when it was born? And what if on top of that, she also knew that if she gave birth to the baby, that she would die? Now are you for abortion or against abortion? And so those are nuanced moral questions that can be dealt with individually. But you realize they're not actually dealing with the problem. They're dealing with the one out of 3.5 million abortions that might would present itself, highly unlikely that it would, rather than dealing with the real problem. That is called whataboutism. That's when people start trying to say, well, because I don't want to do something, I don't want to listen to what you're saying, I'm going to push that away and I'm going to present an impossible scenario that you can't possibly deal with. That's what they were trying to do to Jesus. They were trying to trap him in a question that had no good answer. And they said, so if this man, if, his, if uh, all of his brothers die and he winds up with uh, seven of his brother's wives and they die and then they go to heaven in the afterlife and they were really being sarcastic they were mocking the afterlife. They said, so when they get to heaven, who's going to be married to who? You know, they thought this was crazy, this idea that, you know, everyone gets to heaven and they're in this afterlife. And now we have all of these identity crises. And they thought this was really going to put Jesus in a predicament. Number one, he would either have to deny the scripture or number two, he would have to say, well, yeah, that's pretty crazy. That's going to be a really difficult scenario in heaven. And Jesus just rebuked him and said, you don't even know what you're talking about. Because when we get to heaven in the afterlife, it's not going to be just ordinary men and women like you and I here. There's going to be a resurrected body there. There's going to be a new body in heaven. And so we're not going to know each other as we were known here. We're not going to have the same kind of human interactions that we have here because what's going to happen in the afterlife is going to be so much more profound than what is happening here in this world. And then he stopped them and he said, as touching the dead, they that rise, those who are resurrected in the afterlife. Haven't you read in the book of Moses how in the bush God spake unto him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Do you realize what Jesus was doing? He was referring to three great men who were dead. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he said, these men are dead, and God is not the God of the dead, because it was common in Jewish culture to say that he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is not just the God of a bunch of dead men who are buried in the ground never to be seen again. No, you can know that those great men have an afterlife, and they are going to be eternal. They have a soul that is going to live on. God is not just presiding over human death and destruction and graves, and he's not just, uh, he's not just presiding over the current people who are alive today God is the God of living souls that will live forever in eternity you and I have a soul that will live on in the afterlife and it's up to you whether or not you will live in hell or in heaven with the Lord and but you can know one thing when you die it's not over it's just beginning if there's one thing you can know your final breath no, it's not the end of everything. It is the beginning of everything. That is what Jesus was saying. God is not the God of the dead. God is the God of the living. How many are thankful that we have a hope of eternity here tonight? 
He is the God of eternity. All right, I'll take you to number three, 1 Corinthians 14, 32. If you can read this with me, please do. For God is not the author of confusion, but of, as in all churches of the saints. We got about three people reading. Let's do that again. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace as in all churches of the saints. Look at your neighbor and say, God is not the God of confusion. God is not the God of confusion. Now, I want to pause here and just take a few minutes. I can't do this justice tonight because this is a topic that deserves an entire lesson, and I, I've actually been feeling strongly that uh, we, we need to have this lesson very soon, but in this format, I just wanted to touch on it briefly. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, really the entire chapter, the Apostle Paul is dealing with uh, order in the church. Everyone said order. Doing things decently and in order. And he begins a long dis discussion about the gifts of the Spirit. Everyone said the gifts of the Spirit. I'm going to make you keep talking back until you wake up. The gifts of the Spirit. And the reason that he's doing that, he's, he's addressing specifically the gift of tongues and interpretation. Which, by the way, are two gifts, the gifts of tongues and the gift of interpretation. Some people have the gift of tongues, some people have the gift of interpretation, and some have both. Some have both. And Paul was dealing with a situation in the church there where their services were becoming unruly. Now, we are apostolic Pentecostals, and when we say unruly, we don't mean it the way Baptists do when they talk about unruly church. The Bible is clear that we can have emotional worship. Hello? The Bible is clear that we should make a joyful noise unto the Lord. I don't know how you can teach. I was reading this week uh, someone who was talking about this subject, and they were saying that they were a version of Pentecostal. And they were saying that speaking in tongues in church is only acceptable in the parameters of the gift of tongues and interpretation. All other speaking in tongues should be done privately in your own prayer or in home, but you should never speak in tongues in church outside of the gift of tongues and interpretation. And then in the same article and the same breath, they said that you have to receive the Holy Ghost speaking in other tongues in order to be saved. And I thought, well, my goodness, if people can only speak in tongues when they're doing uh, tongues and interpretation, how are you going to get people filled with the Holy Ghost in order to be saved? No, tongues is for the edification of the church. Paul was talking about a different type of tongues. He was talking very, very specifically, not about the worship in tongues or praying in tongues, but he was talking about the gift, the operating of the gift of tongues and interpretation. And so uh, I believe in shouting. I believe in dancing. I believe that we can speak in tongues in service. I believe where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. I believe that. 
And I believe in demonstrative worship. I think that we should... Uh, I think that we should shout more. I think we should sing louder. I think we should shout amen. It's biblical to shout amen, by the way. They did. They absolutely did. In fact, uh, I'm going to get on another soapbox here, but I had somebody mocking churches for having people stand when they read the scripture. They were making fun of churches for doing that, and they were calling it a religious tradition that makes no sense at all. And I, all I could think is, number one, if you respect something, what do we do? We stand. The Bible teaches us to stand in the presence of elders. And also, in Scripture, they did stand for the reading of the Word. And they shouted, Amen. That's Bible. And so, you know, here's the thing. We don't... Do I think someone's going to go to hell for not standing when the Bible text is being read? No, I don't think that at all. But I do think it says something about their heart. Yeah. I think it says something about their heart. When you reverence something, you stand for it. That's, that's, that's scripture, and it's also custom, and I think it's a good thing. I think that you ought to stand in the presence of elders. Men, I think you ought to stand in the presence of women, and I think we ought to stand when the word of God is being spoken over us. I think that we should, and I'm not ashamed of it. I take a high view of scripture. And so Paul, though, is dealing with unruliness that was happening in the church, spiritual confusion. There is nothing more dangerous and destructive in churches than spiritual confusion. When the gifts of the spirit are abused and misused, it brings all kinds of destruction into the lives of people that are present. And that's why oftentimes we saw this in our revival when Brother Campatella was here. The enemy will send distractions into a church to send spiritual confusion into a service when he knows that God is trying to do something. Yes, he will. And the church needs to understand what the Bible teaches about these things so that we can be decent and in order. Just because we're demonstrative, just because we have liberty, doesn't mean that God hasn't given us parameters to operate within when we are in a church service. Uh, that's why uh, we can't just hand the mic to anybody we want to hand the mic to. And if we didn't have microphones, the way we would do it is we wouldn't just let anybody speak who wanted to speak. Because that would not be decent and in order. I was in, well, I'm going to get in trouble. Pastor, if I start telling stories, I'll get in trouble. But I've grown up in church. I could tell you a lot of stories about handing the mic to the wrong person. Praise the Lord. glory. <laughs> I, could tell you, I could tell you a lot of stories about uh, when, when things got a little out of hand. Uh, and so it would be, I'll give you a few examples of what would be indecent and out of order. If someone starts trying to take over an atmosphere while the preaching is going forth, that would be out of order. If someone starts hurting people in their worship, that would be out of order. Or themselves. If someone, I'll give you an example, and I'm just going to go ahead and, and I'm going to preach to men and women. Sometimes we pick on men with this one, but I've seen it with women as well. Uh... Just because you're in church and you're praying with someone and you're feeling the touch of God, men, that doesn't mean you should go touch women inappropriately. And women, it doesn't mean you should go hug on men either. That would be indecent and out of order. God doesn't want you doing it out of church and he doesn't want you doing it in an altar either. 
And so these are examples of things that we need to watch and be careful of. And when it comes to spiritual giftings um, and the giving forth of tongues and the interpretation, Paul said several things. Number one, he made a long case. We won't read the whole scripture. He made a long case for why the interpretation is more important than the tongues. The interpretation is more profitable than the speaking forth of tongues. It's been a long time talking about how, you know, if there are people there, and he literally said in one place, I'm giving you the Ryan French translate, the really loose translation. He said, if, if there are unbelievers who come into the service and everybody's just over here giving forth tongues and there's never any interpretation, they're going to think you're crazy because they can't understand what's going on. You know that God's moving, but they don't have a clue. And God is trying to speak. The whole point of the giving forth of tongues is that God is trying to speak through you. That's the whole point. The point is not so that we can say, I'm very, very spiritual. I'm speaking in tongues really loud. No, the only reason that that happens is so God is speaking through you in tongues and giving someone an interpretation. And that interpretation is meant to build and edify the church. Sometimes it can expose sin. Paul even said there are times when it will convict sinners. There will be unbelievers there who will hear the interpretation and, and the interpretation will speak right into their life, right into their situation. And they'll say, surely God is in this place. They couldn't possibly know that about my life. They couldn't possibly know that's happening to me today. But God spoke through that person in another language I don't even understand. And then that person interpreted and it went right into my life. And unbelievers will say, surely God is in this place. The purpose of giving forth in tongues is to give an interpretation. That's why Paul said that you should pray for the gifts. You should pray for the gift of tongues. If you don't have it, you should desire it. You should hunger for it. And not only should you desire the gift of tongues, but you really should desire the gift of interpretation because that's what edifies the body. Speaking in tongues edifies you and the interpretation edifies the body. How many are thankful for the gifts of the spirit and how can it build us up, lift us up? Sometimes Sometimes they expose things. Now, it would never be improper. Uh, it would never expose something in an improper way, but in a general way, it can expose something that God is trying to deal with and that God is trying to help us with. And so let's talk very quickly about the spiritual balance and, and the guidelines for the gift of tongues and interpretation within the church. All of that within the context that God is never the author of confusion. If you go into a church and there is no structure and it is and everything is confusion, you can know that God is not pleased because God is not the author of confusion. God is not going to put his name, his stamp of approval on confusion. And so here are the and and we're just giving the very basics here because of time's sake. Number 1, in any one meeting, there must not be more than two or three, everyone said two or three, who give forth tongues to be interpreted. The interpretation is more important than the tongues. We've already covered this because people need to understand and benefit from the message. Everyone said two or three, one more time. That's important. And so if you're the fourth person, you're out of order. Hello. Everybody catch that? And when it says two or three, he's kind of giving you a little grace there. So two or three. Number two, tongues must be given 
and interpretation as well by one person at a time. Look at your neighbor and say, one at a time. And so if someone starts giving forth tongues and you start giving forth tongues at the same time, you're what? You're out of order. You are out of order. And you, nobody has to wonder. Nobody has to guess. We know because the word of God is true. We don't have to call a council and wonder, are they out of order? We know because God already told us they're out of order. Out of order. And, and we need to watch for these things. That's why it's important uh, to, be, uh, to be involved in the service. Because, listen, I know that sometimes... Uh, people do these things, and we've all, we've all been, most of us have been in church a while. We've seen all kinds of different things. And oftentimes, it's not someone having a bad spirit, right? It's not always someone having an evil spirit or they're trying to do something wrong. It's just simply that they're not paying attention like they should be. And they're not, they're not or maybe they're not aware of Scripture like they should be. And that's why we have services like this, isn't it? That's why we have midweek Bible study, so we can understand things that maybe we don't understand. If there's someone new to the things of God and, and, and they wind up being out of order, that doesn't mean that we go, you know, discom- uh, excommunicate them or throw them out on the street or something like that. No, we go love them and we show them the Scripture. Right. We can we love them. and We say, here's what the word of the Lord says. You know, God wants to use you in this gift, but you need to make sure that you do it according to the word of God, because God is never the author of confusion, never the author of confusion. Now, number three, uh, this one is important. I believe all interpretations must be judged or evaluated by the congregation and spiritual leadership as to its authenticity. That's verse twenty nine and thirty two. In other words. You do not place prophecy on the same level that you do the word of God. Everybody with me? I don't even place preaching on the same level as the word of God because preachers are finite human beings who are capable of error. I'm capable of error. Uh, I mixed up Elijah and Elisha one time, and I had at least 10 people tell me about it. And, And I didn't even know I'd done it. Why is that? Because I'm a human being. If my wife wasn't sick, she'd be here shouting amen. And so human beings are capable of error. Sometimes people are sincere, but they, uh, and, and sometimes they're not. By the way, tongues and interpretation can be an abused gift. Prophecy is one of the most abused gifts. Why do you think there were so many false prophets in the Old and New Testament? Because if anybody can stand up and say they're a prophet. That doesn't mean they're a prophet. Anybody can get up and say, I've got a word from God. That doesn't mean they have a word from God. You still have to use the gift of discernment. And you have to hold all prophecy up to the word of God. So if someone gives a prophecy and it is contrary to the word of God, it's out of order. If someone gives a prophecy that is contrary to the man of God, it is out of order. And so you can know that immediately. So God requires us to use the gift of discernment when tongues and interpretation go forth. We hold it up to the light of the word of God. And, uh, and obviously, uh, we hold it up not with a... Now, let me clarify. That doesn't mean we act suspicious. God doesn't want us to run around with a suspicious spirit where every time the Holy Ghost is moving that we're just going to get all tense and suspicious. I'm not, I'm not advocating that at all. But I am saying, you know, your Holy Ghost can feel when something's not right. 
Anybody know what I mean? Anybody have the Holy Ghost here tonight? You can feel when something's not right, and you can feel when it's moving. That's why when tongues and interpretation go forth, have you ever noticed how the room will just... <laughs> even babies will stop crying. I've seen that so many. It's amazing to me. It's like even babies know that something is happening. They don't know what it is, but the presence of God just takes over and, and there's like a holy hush and then the tongues will go forth and and you might even be in a service we've had it here many times where uh you know 50 60 70 80 100 people are all speaking in tongues at the same time they're worshiping people are receiving the holy ghost over there and the music is playing and all of a sudden there's just a moment where everybody just stops and gets quiet and the kids stop and uh and uh and everything just changes you can feel it in the Holy Ghost, and then the tongues go forth, and you can feel it in the Spirit, and then the interpretation, and you can feel your Holy Ghost bears witness with that. Yeah, it's supernatural. We say, how is that possible? I don't know how it's possible. I just know with God all things are possible. I just know with God nothing shall be called impossible. Amen. Amen. And so you should desire the gifts. We should long for the gifts. Uh, the danger of teaching this way is it sounds like, you know, well, he's being really strict. That means he's not, he's not a big fan of the gifts of the Spirit. Ah, to the contrary. Nobody's a bigger fan of the gifts of the Spirit than me. I want to see more of them. But I want them to be decent and in order according to the Word of God. That'd be a good place to clap your hands and say amen. Now, here's the final point. If tongues have gone forth, if there's been two or three tongues... And there has been no interpretation, which does happen from time to time. A believer should pray in tongues privately to God. In other words, what Paul, he was reiterating, don't just keep giving forth tongues. You, we're not just going to uh, have 10 people give forth tongues and there never be an interpretation. If two or three go forth and there's no interpretation, it's time to stop. It's time to stop. You, you don't keep pushing for that. And you don't have to get discouraged. And it doesn't mean, by the way, that the person who gave forth tongues was not genuine and touched by God. It doesn't mean that they were out of order. It just means that there was no interpreter present. There, no one had the gift of interpretation in that room at that particular time. Or sometimes people fight it. They, they want to, but uh, they, they let intimidation stop them. We understand how all of that works. And sometimes God's trying to deal with someone, and, and, and maybe they just get a, a little nervous about it. But that doesn't mean the tongues are out of order. But it does mean when you get to that third one, it's time to stop. It's time to quit and go back into whatever else was happening before that. And we want to do it right before God because God is never, ever, ever, ever the author of confusion. Amen. Everyone said amen. And so I, I wanted to cover that. That's a great uh, topic. You know, you can go a long time. We could spend uh, two or three lessons going through First uh, Corinthians there, and uh, we'll do that another time. All right. Taking you to number four. Be not deceived. This is Galatians 6 and 7. And verse 8, be not deceived. God is not mocked. God is not mocked. For whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. So God is not mocked. Now, I studied this a lot this week, um, and I've preached from this particular passage many, many times. Uh, there's a lot to it. I had never 
um, thought of it in the way that my studies led me um, throughout the week. I was going through some commentaries and I was going through uh, some, some Bible study applications and it was bringing up things that I had never noticed about this passage of Scripture. Paul is talking very specifically, if we were to read the entire chapter, about the saints' relationship with the ministry. Everyone said the ministry. The ministry. And so in the midst of this, Paul kind of pauses, and he was actually talking in the verses before verse 7 about taking care of the church, providing for the church financially and in other ways. Uh, providing for the ministry. He's going through all of these things. And then he kind of pauses, and I had never noticed it, but he, he gives a little bit of a rebuke, and he said, don't be deceived. God isn't mocked. So whatever you sow, that shall he also reap. I was reading a commentary, a commentary on Galatians by Martin Luther of 1535. He said, be not deceived, warns the apostle. God is not mocked. God will not be mocked in his ministers. Christ said, he that despiseth you despiseth me. To Samuel, God said, they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me. Be careful, you scoffers. God may postpone his punishment for a time, but he will find you out in time and punish you for despising his servants. I think about the prophet that the bears came. Anybody ever, the bald prophet, the bears came out of the woods. They were laughing at him. They were mocking him. You need to be very careful when you mock the things of God, the man of God, when you make fun of worship. I have a real pet peeve, and uh, I've, I've shared this here before, when people make fun of those who are speaking in other tongues. I don't think you should ever jokingly speak in tongues. You ever seen someone do that? If you've been around Pentecost long enough, you've seen someone fake speaking in tongues and they did it as a joke, I rebuke that in Jesus' name. You should not make fun of holy things. Just because someone doesn't worship just like you worship, that doesn't mean that you can make fun of them. We should never mock the things of God. We should never mock the things of God. Now listen, I realize when, when, when I really feel the Spirit and I start dancing a little bit, there is nobody whiter than me when I start dancing. And my one leg is longer than the other, and sometimes I almost fall over. And, uh, but I feel the presence of the Lord, and I want to express my worship. And, and, and I understand that people, we're not always going to look pretty when we're worshiping. It's not about looking pretty. It's about worshiping the Lord. And we should never mock the things of God. We should never create an environment where we're comfortable. If you're comfortable talking about the man of God in a mean-spirited, gossipy way, you need to know, don't be deceived, God will not be mocked. God will not be mocked. Now, I've never heard anyone preach this from this uh, particular perspective, but this is the context that Paul was talking about. You be careful how you treat the ministry, because when you mistreat the ministry, you're mocking God. Because you didn't call them, God called them. You didn't appoint them, God appointed them. And so when you raise your hand, that's why David, even though Saul, Saul was out of the will of God. And most of us would have understood when David was in that cave and Saul was sleeping and Saul was chasing David and wanted to kill him. Most of us would have said if David would have just plunged the knife in his heart, we'd have said, you know what? He had a right to do that. But David said, I'm not going to touch God's anointing. He might be wrong. He might be out of the will. Now, notice David didn't let him kill him either. You don't have to let 
an unrepentant, backslidden preacher kill you. But you better not kill them either. Hello. That's one of the best things you'll hear all night. And so sometimes that bitterness will get in our heart and we'll say, well, I can, you know, that preacher did wrong, so I'll just destroy him. You better be careful because even God will take care of him. You better believe it. He might wind up in a seance somewhere and then die the next morning like Saul did. You better be careful. God will take care of that man. It's not your job. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. So you better be very careful. I've had preachers hurt me. Yeah. Absolutely. I've been let down. Men that I trusted backslid, turned their back on God, broke my heart. I've seen it. We've all seen it. We absolutely have. But you know what I'm not going to do? I'm not going to put my hands on them. I'm going to let God take care of them. I'm going to let God. Now, I'm not going to let them destroy me either. I'm not going to let them take me down in the ship. I'm going to get off the Titanic. And I'm going to get to the house of God. I'm getting off the Titanic. I'm going over to Noah's Ark because that was designed by God and it's going to float. So don't go down with them. Don't go down in their compromise. No, 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 no. That doesn't mean you, you, you're okay with everything they do. It just means, listen, I'm going to let God handle it. It's not my job to handle it. I'm just going to move. I'm going to get out of here. I'm going to let them know that I know, but then I'm gone. That's the right way to handle. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. And you better be especially careful if you start laying your hands on a true righteous man of God. Now you're really in dangerous territory. You start laying your hands on a righteous man of God. You want to get God angry? Start messing with a righteous man of God. Uh, Albert Barnes, one of my favorite commentaries, Barnes notes on the New Testament, he said this, No zeal, however ardent, no prayers, however fervent or long, no professions, however loud, would impose on God. And to make such prayers and to manifest such zeal and such strong professions while the heart was with the world. Everyone said, with the world. How was your heart with the world? Here's what he said. Because they were spending their money for everything else but religion. It was mocking God. You can say you love the Lord. You can worship. You can shout on Sunday. You can kneel and pray. You can profess your faith in a thousand ways. But if you never support the house of God financially, your heart is with the world. Mm. Your heart is with the world. Because where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. So you can say your heart's with the things of God all day, but if your treasure is with the world and only the world, and you never lift a finger to support the house of God, that's where your heart is. And so be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh, if all you sow financially, if all you sow with your time, if all you sow with your talent, if all you sow with your energy is to your flesh, to this life, to temporary things, and you're going to reap temporary things, and they're corruptible. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. How many think that we should spend more time concerned with our everlasting treasure than we should the treasure of stock markets and bonds and banks and, and real estate and all of those things? I want my treasure to be with the Lord. Someone clap your hands and say amen. <laughs> Praise God. All right, I'm taking to the last one. I'm closing here. Hebrews 6 and 10. 
For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which ye have showed toward his name. Everyone said his name. Somebody shout that name. Jesus. In that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. Now, we just said a few convicting things about our relationship to the church and our responsibility to ministry and to one another as saints and to the house of God. But then here Paul is in Hebrews and he's talking to people who had dedicated themselves to ministering to one another, ministering to the man of God, taking care of the house of God, people who were sending missionaries, people who were giving of their time, their talents, their money, their energy. They were sacrificing. And he looked at these precious people and he said, I I want you to understand that God is not unrighteous. He's not going to forget your labor of love. He's not going to forget your ministry. He's not going to forget the time that you gave. I I, want to just pause. I'm closing, but I want to preach to someone. You give a lot of things to the house of God, and I don't just mean money. I mean, you give your time, your energy, your talents. You sacrifice in Sunday school. You come early. You leave late. You, you You are concerned with the things of God, with the house of God. You pray for it. You, even when we're not in church, you're ministering to people and in every way that you possibly can. And sometimes, It's easy to get discouraged and feel like God is not noticing the sacrifices that you're making for his kingdom. Sometimes when you're doing things that no one can see, you're sacrificing in ways that are not visible to everyone in the church. It can feel like you're not appreciated for it. But can I just tell you, like Paul, God is not unrighteous to forget your labor of love. God is going to bless you. God is going to give you his favor. God is going to keep you. Fight the good fight of faith. Run to the end. Do not be weary in well-doing because God is not going to forget your labor of love. Stand with me together. God is not going to forget your labor of love. Years and years and years and years of faithful, faithful service. And sometimes for the Collins, we come early for church and we practice and we do all of these things. And sometimes it just feels like we're just going through the motions. But I want you to remember that God is watching everything that you do. Every little piece of trash that, that you pick up from the carpet. And nobody notices that you went over and you, you picked that up and you threw it in the garbage because you want to represent the house of God well. God is looking at that. God knows about that. God is concerned with that. And he is not going to forget your labor of love. Every child that you touch. Every cup of water you give in his name. Hallelujah. 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 Every homeless person that you pray for. Every sick or elderly shut-in that you minister to. You just call them. You just love on them a little bit. God is going to remember that. Every hurting soul, every struggling soul that's about to give up, but you are so involved in the kingdom that you reach over and say, we're going to make it in Jesus' name. Let's go down to the altar and pray. God is going to remember that labor of love. Everything you do that seems like it's, it's really not making a difference, it's making a difference. Don't let the devil tell you you're not making a difference. You are vital in the kingdom of God, and God is not unrighteous. He is not going to forgive. You know, I was encouraged, and I'm, I'm, this will be the last thing I say, but 
I was encouraged. Someone handed me a, a tithe envelope a few weeks ago, and they had written on it. I won't tell you who it is. And, uh, and in the envelope, it was, it was $1 tithes. $1. And, uh, if, and I, I thought, what an incredible, it was a young person, and I thought, what an incredible thing that is. That, you know, some people would say, well, it's just a dollar, I'll just keep it. But they were so concerned, they had been taught so well, and they wanted to be right so well that they literally, they had that $10 and they took $1 from it and they put it and they gave it to the house of God. God is not unrighteous. I, you know, in God's eyes, that's the same as if you were a billionaire and you gave a million dollars. In God's eyes, there is no difference. God is not unrighteous to give your to forget your labor of love. Let's bow our heads. Lord, in the name of Jesus, I pray that you would encourage somebody right now. Lord, they are weary and well-doing. They're tired. They feel unappreciated, God. I pray that they would know that your hand is upon them, that your anointing is upon them, that you are blessing them, that you are watching them, that you are concerned with them. And God, that they are vital and important and necessary to not only the kingdom of this world, but to the eternal kingdom that you have for us in glory. We give you praise. I pray that we would remember that even the small things are big in the kingdom of God. The least things. 